0: Alright, let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. This is the fourth study in Romans 12. If I'm counting right, it's the 27th study in Romans on Wednesday night, so it's not exactly a jet tour of the book, but we've been covering it adequately to apply it to our lives. Once again, chapter 12 begins the practical section of Romans. You might say it's the non-theological section. And he bases the practical application upon all of the theology that we've already covered for twenty-some weeks. The theme of the section is the will of God, which if you're a Christian that should be one of your preeminent items in your heart and mind, and that is to know the will of God. And so he presents generally, in verse 1 and 2, how you know the will of God, then specifically the rest of the book. You generally know the will of God by presenting your body to him and by having your mind transformed by him. And then specifically we are to present our bodies to the church with the gifts that we have to use for the glory of God. Then we present ourselves to the family of God to love them for their encouragement. And then we are to present ourselves to the world, to love them for a witness for Jesus Christ. And that sort of sums up the entire chapter. We're dealing with tonight, in the last part of chapter 12, the enemies of God, loving your enemies. We should love the family of God, but then we should also love the enemies of God. Verse 14, notice the phrase, those who persecute. And then look at verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, quoting from Proverbs 25, then you ought to feed him. So the Christian has enemies. Uh, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Now you might say at this point, well, you're talking to the wrong person. I don't have any enemies. Well, I hope you have some. It's healthy to have a few. In fact, you can tell a lot about a person by his friends, but also by his enemies. Now, when I describe to you what an enemy is, I think you go, oh, I have a few of those. Webster's Dictionary defines an enemy as one who is antagonistic toward another. Okay, well, I guess I have a few then, because there are some people in my life that have been antagonistic towards me because I have been a believer. Some might be your family. Jesus said, A man's enemies can be those from his own household. You may have people in your life that when you came to Jesus Christ, they resented that. And they still resent you, perhaps, because of it. In Psalm 23, David said to the Lord, You prepare a table before me in the midst of my enemies. Did David have enemies? He had a lot of them. Let's see, he had Goliath pretty big enemy, the Philistines. He had the Amalekites. He had the Moabites. He had the Termites. No, I'm just kidding, just seeing if you're listening. <laughs> he had the Syrians. Those were pretty obvious enemies. But then he had unexpected, not so obvious enemies. King Saul of Israel was his enemy, trying to kill his life, to destroy his life. His own son, Absalom, became his enemy later. Ahithophel, whom he thought was a trusted servant, became his enemy. So David had all sorts of enemies, and Jesus said, not if you have enemies, but he assumed that you would. Therefore he said, love those who are your enemies. Do good to those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now you might say, uh, well, do I have to have enemies? I mean, I don't want to make anybody my enemy. Can't we all just get along? Well, it'd be great if we could. But if you notice down in verse 18 it says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you live peaceably with all men. Sometimes it's just not possible. You want to, if it's possible, be friendly and wonderful to everyone, but sometimes it's not possible. And Paul told Timothy the words most of us are familiar with by now all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The world always has and the world always will persecute the child of God. You can't get out of it. If you live godly in Christ Jesus, there will be a measure of persecution. You won't be tolerated long. You say, well, why not? Well, it's like going into a dark room And turning on the light switch to someone who's grown accustomed to the dark. They will hate the light and they will long for the darkness because they have been in it for so long, that's all they know. So when you turn on the light in their eyes, they're going to put their hands over their eyes and go, turn that thing off, it hurts, I hate it. That's what Jesus said. He said, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Neither would they come to the light, lest their deeds should be reproved or exposed. Makes sense. You decide to love God with all your heart. You decide to present your body to God. You decide to let your mind be transformed by God. You decide in that transformation of your mind to work alongside other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ using your gifts and talents. You decide to love God's people. If you do all of those things, do you think hell is going to give you a standing ovation? Do you think all the demons who are your enemies will go, yes, he's finally committed to the evangelistic cause? No, they're going, to, they're going to oppose you. You will become, in effect, a walking target. It's what happens so often in the Bible, and it still happens today. Let me plant something in your memory. If you follow Acts 1.8, you will incur Acts 8.1, the reverse of that. 1 1. If you do 1-8, you'll incur 8-1. Let me tell you what, you don't have to turn to it, I'll just tell you what they say. Acts 1-8 you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Acts 8.1, and there arose a great persecution against the church. If you do Acts 1.8, Acts 8.1 will be the inevitable result. Now there is a way, just in case you're wondering, I like to escape this enemy business, this whole persecution vibe. How can I do that? Let me tell you the way. Compromise with the world, laugh at their stupid, dirty jokes, entertain all of the same values, don't be any different than they are, don't ever mention that you love Jesus or that you're a Christian and you won't be persecuted. I don't think it's worth it, do you? I would rather be loved singularly by God and hated by all men than be loved by all men and be God's enemy. And if you are the friend of God, then you will incur some wrath. Uh, I haven't even began our text yet, maybe I should, then I can branch off and refer to other things. <laughs> let's do this, let's, let's begin, let's begin at verse 1. You say, we've already done that, I know, but isn't it good to get context? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace that is given to me to every one who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one A measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts, differing according to the grace that is given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, He who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another, with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind to one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Tonight we want to look at verse 14. We're going to lift that out. And then verse 17 through 21. We want to finish the chapter. I want you to notice there's four negative commands in a few verses. In verse 14, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So we're given something definitely not to do. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Or it's put in the negative, do not repay evil for evil. Verse 19, beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We want to sort of look at four things tonight in these texts. There's Four comparisons, what not to do but what to do when it comes to your enemies. Now, Paul wrote this to Romans, Roman Christians, Jew and Gentile, mostly Gentile, but a healthy mix of both. While they were living in Rome, Rome didn't like them. Eventually, the state of Rome became more closed to the spread of the gospel as years went on. They became a threat to the Roman Empire. So much so that the Romans invented charges against the Christians. False charges. They made up lies about them. They said that Christians in the Roman Empire were cannibals. They said that because they talked about eating the body and blood of the Lord at communion. They said they were unfaithful to the state. They were not loyal to the emperor. Why? Because once a year all of the Roman citizens were commanded to get together in public settings within Roman cities. They had to swear allegiance to Caesar as God because they deified Caesar. They would take a pinch of incense before the bust of Caesar. They would put it in the fire and say, Caesar is Lord. Once they did that, they were given a certificate known as a libellus which gave them license to worship any other god after they worshiped the Roman Caesar. This is where the Christians posed a problem. Because Christians, though they may be forced to stand before the bust of Caesar, as they would put their pinch of incense in, would say, Jesus is Lord. And none other. They refused to say Caesar is Lord, and so they were seen as enemies of the state. And persecution was their lot. So these are very, very powerful words. Now, I want to paint the picture a little darker. It'll make more of an impact. If you want to get a great book to find out the history of the church of Jesus Christ throughout history, get Fox's Book of Martyrs. It will tell you from the early days of Christianity, starting with the apostles, and millions of others afterwards, how they were persecuted for their faith. In fact, just a study of the 12 apostles, almost every one of them died the death of a martyr. Here's a sampling. Matthew was slain with a sword in Ethiopia. Mark was dragged through the streets of Alexandria, Egypt. Luke hung upon an olive tree in Greece. John, the apostle, put in boiling oil. He escaped his death and was banished and branded at Patmos. Peter was crucified at Rome with his head downward. James the Greater, beheaded at Jerusalem. James the Less, thrown from a pinnacle of the temple and then beaten to death with a club. Bartholomew flayed alive. Andrew bound to a cross where he preached to his persecutors until dead. Thomas was run through with a lance preaching the gospel in India. And Jude was shot to death with arrows. That's the record. A few years ago I stood atop the Colosseum in Rome. And I looked into that Colosseum and I looked all around Rome and I thought how many of our brothers and sisters were once burned at the stake and killed by lions in that great arena. And then looking back toward the Roman Forum, the times when Caesar Nero would put Christians fastened to poles, douse them with hot pitch and use them as living torches to light up his garden at night when Christians were put inside the skins of wild animals and hunting dogs attacked them till they were eaten to death, when they took molten lead and poured them on our brothers and sisters and red-hot brass plates and affixed them to some of the tenderest parts of their bodies, eyes gouged out, hands and feet cut off, and flayed, burned before their very eyes. And with that as a background, we come to this section, which teaches us the principle of non-retaliation. Love your enemies. The principle of personal non-retaliation, refusing to take vengeance. In fact, I would say that what we're dealing with in these verses is the pinnacle, the pinnacle, the top of Christian maturity. Remember what Jesus said? He said to his disciples, You know, if you only love the people that love you, big deal. Let's paraphrase a little bit. But if you only love those who love you, he said, what good is that? Every now and then I will catch a Christian say, Oh, I I want the deeper stuff of Christianity. I don't want just Bible study. I don't want just, you know, what you guys offer. I want the deep things of God. Okay? You do? This is it. You love like this, you can't get any deeper. Loving people who love you is the shallow end of the pool. Loving your enemies who persecute you, these are the deep things of Christianity. It's the absolute pinnacle of Christian maturity. Well, let's look then at, at these four comparisons, beginning in verse 14. I really wanted to save verse 14 for tonight's study because the context is the same. First is blessing rather than cursing. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Some people I know are good with their tongues. They're sharp. They're witty and they're caustic. They know what to say to really get a person back. They can just verbally destroy another person. I heard about a maid who was fired by the wealthy family that once employed her And uh, they did it in a very messy, embarrassing kind of a manner. We don't need you anymore. Get out of our house. And uh, it was her security. She needed that job desperately. But they fired her. And so upon leaving the house, she took out a $5 bill and threw it to Fido the dog. And the family said, why did you give our dog $5? She said, because I never forget a friend. She said, that was for helping me clean your dishes all this time goodbye. Now, I have a hunch that we listen to that and we go, yeah, we like it. That's human nature to do so. But we're told to return good for those who give evil. We're told to bless somebody who would curse us. Words of kindness and love, the soft answer in the midst of wrath. Frowns should be dealt with by smiles. You say, well, that's, uh, that's impossible to do. Jesus did it. Remember, he was God, but he came as a man. And Peter remembered seeing the life of Jesus Christ. He was with him for three and a half years. He saw how people treated him. He remembered being at the trial of Jesus somewhat. He was denying him, of course, while Jesus was being tried. But then Jesus hanging on a cross and asking God to forgive the people who were crucifying him. And the Apostle Peter wrote these words about Jesus. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. You remember some of the insults they gave Jesus? They said, he's a a wine-bibber and a glutton. He's a friend of sinners. That's like saying, he's the town drunk and he hangs out with losers. Jesus didn't retaliate. When they beat him and put a crown of thorns on him and mocked him as he was hanging on a cross, he could have said, Wait till the resurrection, you guys. I'm coming back, and you're toast when I do. (laughs) He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He interceded on their behalf. The Apostle Paul, who writes these words, had his share of being cursed In Athens, they called him a babbler. They thought he was not intellectual like they were. Festus, when he was on trial in Caesarea, as he was talking about the resurrection, interjected and said, you're nuts, you're out of your mind, you are mad. And Paul didn't say, shut up, Festus. He simply said, I am not mad, most noble, Festus. That's blessing, not cursing. I speak words of truth and words of reason. We remember back in the Old Testament that Saul threw a spear at David, and what did David do? Did he grab it and then say, ha, now I've got it, throw it back? No, he ducked and he ran out. When people throw verbal insults at you, do you grab them and throw them back or do you duck? We don't incur the kind of persecution in this country that others do in their countries even today or that we read the Roman Christians undergoing. But we do live in an era in which Christianity is not being tolerated like it used to be. It's okay to be spiritual, but if you are a narrow-minded, bigoted believer in Christ, as you are now called, you will not be tolerated. How do you respond to those accusations? How do you respond to Madeleine Murray O'Hare when she, in an interview, said, Christianity is intolerant, anti-democratic, anti-sexual, and anti-life. It is anti-everything that is good and human and decent and kind and love-filled and understanding. I used to have an intellectual hatred for Christianity, says O'Hare. I think it's broadening now. I'm enjoying hating the whole thing. It should cause us to say, Lord, save all those people that think that way. Lord, help me to love them, to show them that the accusations that they say against us about being unloving are not true. You say, okay, it says bless and don't curse. How do I do that? Well, Jesus said sort of the same thing, didn't he? He said, bless those who curse you. Do good and pray for those who spitefully use you. Have you found that when you pray for people, they can't be your enemy very long? If you're bearing their name before the throne of God and you have something against them, they're not going to be your enemy very long. You're going to start developing a love, maybe a sympathy for them, as you ask God to touch their hearts. A woman came up to me one time after a Bible study some time ago and she was speaking about her ex-husband. We were doing a message on love and forgiveness and she talked about her ex-husband very disparagingly. She said, I don't love him as a husband. I don't love him as a man. I don't love him as a Christian. He's my enemy. I said, then love him as your enemy. You're still called to love your enemies. There is no excuse to not love anyone. Love your enemy. Bless and do not curse. A book that I've had, it's very old by now, but it's always ministered to me, called Disciple by Juan Carlos Ortiz. I think I said it right. I mispronounced it and I have been corrected numerous occasions. He said, there was a man in my former denomination who became my enemy some time ago. He said, I wasn't faithful to the church. Eventually he started to hate me, and during one of the Conventions, I went up to him and I said, Hello, how are you? and gave him a hug. Don't hug me, he growled. Well, I love you, I replied. You can't love me. I'm your enemy. He was shouting at this point. Praise the Lord, I said. I didn't know you were my enemy, but now here's my opportunity for me to love my enemies. Thank you, Jesus, I prayed, for my precious enemy. And then he concludes, you know something? One year later, I was preaching in his church. So, blessing rather than cursing. That's how we treat our enemies, our antagonists. Second, peace rather than payback. Look at verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Peace rather than payback. Repay no one evil for evil. How hard that is. In Broken Bone, Nebraska, little truck stop. Truck driver pulled up his rig, walked inside, had breakfast. He was a, what we'd call a slight man, small framed truck driver, walks in, orders breakfast, sits down to eat it, Just then three swaggering hell's angels pull up, get off their bikes, walk inside, and they want to stir up trouble. One of the bikers grabs the guy's pancakes, starts eating them just with his hand. Other one grabs his eggs, sausage. The other guy takes his coffee and starts drinking it, pours the rest on the guy who's trying to enjoy his meal. they're, They're trying to pick a fight. Well, the guy had enough sense, being a slight man, against three swaggering hell's angels. He's not going to say anything or incite anything. He just simply smiled at them, got up, paid the bill, walked outside, drove away. And the waitress looking out the window and she goes, wow, you know, and they're just kind of watching. And the hell's angels look at each other and one of them says, he wasn't much of a man. And Just then the waitress says, he wasn't much of a truck driver either because he just ran over three motorcycles out in the parking lot. Again, we hear this story and we go, yeah, (laughs) I'll remember that one. Payback time. We have a tremendous capacity for retaliation, and you know it when somebody on the road treats you a certain way. I find, quite honestly, this is one of my biggest struggles in my Christian life, (laughs) is the road system. You know, it would be good if I could just be airlifted from place to place and not have to actually get on the road. And I asked God, God, why are people in the fast lane driving slower? than? what's the deal with that? It just irks me. So I'm preaching to myself here tonight. Doug Gerald once wrote, he said, If I were a gravedigger or a hangman... There are some people I could work for with a great deal of pleasure. And I read that and I thought, yeah. We call it tit for tat, evening the score. Jesus said don't do that. Paul said repay no one evil for evil. In fact, have regard for the good things, the highest things of another person in the sight of all men. Now there is a law in the Old Testament. Some of you might be thinking about that law at this point, that law of retribution that says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, wound for wound, stripe for stripe, foot for foot, hand for hand. And you would say, well now wait a minute, that's in the Bible. There's a biblical mandate. And so is this a contradiction when here it says, don't repay anyone evil for evil? No vengeance. No, it's not. Number one, when that law was given in the Old Testament, it was not for personal reasons, but for civil, national reasons. In other words, you can't take the law into your own hands. That was a law given to the judges of Israel to enforce that in the law courts. Second, it was given as a deterrent to crime. Here's the law. You cut off somebody's hand, your hand's going to be cut off. You knock out somebody's tooth, They're going to get one of your teeth. It was something to deter crime, and you can see how that law would. And some people say, oh, laws like that, capital punishment and such like that, they don't deter crime. God said it did. When God gave that law in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 19 and others, he said, those who remain shall hear of it and fear, and thereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. In some Mideast countries, they still believe that and enforce that third reason that this does not contradict that law in the Old Testament is that when the law was given in the Old Testament, it was merciful. You say, merciful? How's that? It was given to limit vengeance. Limit vengeance. God said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You know why he said that? Because he knows human nature. Human nature would say, you took out one of my teeth, you're going to wear dentures. I'm taking them all out. You poke my eye out, you'll be blind in both your eyes. Revenge never is satisfied with justice. It always wants more. So to limit the vengeance, the law called, by the way, the lex talionis, the law of exact retribution for the crime was given. But remember, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said by those of old, an eye, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you, then he said to don't repay and to love and to bless, etc. So repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. That's similar to what Jesus said, isn't it? He said, do not resist an evil person. Do not resist an evil person. And What does that mean? Do not resist an evil person. Does that mean we just kind of let people do whatever they want in society? No. It means we personally don't take the vengeance out. We let the laws of the land do that. Because all I have to do is read Romans 13 and he talks the other side of the coin. He says, God gave law courts and police and military to the land, to the societies, to exact vengeance and judgment upon evildoers. They're messengers of God. They're ministers of God. But on a personal level, Jesus said, don't resist an evil person. Now, I've got to tell you that there have been people who have written extensively about this and have said that when Jesus said, don't resist an evil person, and Paul writes sort of the same thing here, that that means we should get rid of the police, we should get rid of the military. Now, Leo Tolstoy, the Russian novelist, wrote his book, Love and War, or, um, Peace, War and Peace, uh, And in the book he cites Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and the words of Paul to say that since the military and the police are the resisting force of evil in society, we're to do away with them, we're to do away with judges, we're to do away with courts, and there should be no punishment for crime. That affected an Indian leader by the name of Mahatma Gandhi who believed in peaceful resistance. But that ideology when taken to an extreme gives a permission slip to thugs and despots to do whatever they want, take over. That's why you have to balance this out with what we're going to read next time in Romans chapter 13. By the way, Jesus stood against evil. Not personally, but remember in the temple when they were gouging the people by selling the lambs at exorbitant rates? He didn't say, I disapprove. He took a whip out. That's standing against evil. He knocked over their tables and drove them out of the temple. So our Lord Jesus stood against evil. We're to stand against immorality corporately within the church. In Corinthians, Paul says of the incestuous relationship going on, put away from yourselves that evil person. There was incest that was going on unchecked by the church. And then Jesus himself said that a believer who sins should be approached by one. If he doesn't listen to the one, should be approached by two or three witnesses. And if they persist in living a sinful, overt lifestyle, they should be put out of the church. That's standing against evil. But that's different than taking personal vendetta, vengeance against somebody else. We'll get to Romans 13 next time. But look at verse 18. If it's possible, I'm glad he said that. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That's the qualification to being a peacemaker. You try. You clear every obstacle out of the way you can. As much as is possible, that depends on you. You don't want to be the one to form the obstacle. But there are some times it's not possible. There's sometimes a person will refuse to reconcile, will fold their arms, dig in their heels, and there are no terms of peace to be discussed. And so he understands that. He says, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, you can't control their responses, but you can control your own actions and your own decisions and your own responses. Don't be an irritant to people. Again, some people have, well, I'd call it an abrasive personality. They just have learned to develop such a tough exterior, it's probably because they're afraid to be vulnerable, they're afraid to commit. It it provides safety for them in relationships by being aloof and cool. And they can be irritating. There was a book out years ago, I think Joyce Landorf wrote it, Irregular People. She said, everyone has at least one, but it's probably more, irregular people in their lives, the abrasive sort, the contentious type. You're probably are going, oh yeah, I can think of a lot more than one. But you should also understand that you probably are an irregular person to somebody else. It's important to view both sides of that sphere. And so, as much as is possible, be a peacemaker. You know what a peacemaker does? Drains his moats. You know what I mean by that? There's access. You don't have a moat, you know, to keep people out in a way and at a distance and in an adversarial enmity, but you drain your moat. Be a peacemaker. So blessing rather than cursing, peace rather than payback. Beginning in verse 19, we have serving rather than avenging. Serving rather than avenging. Avenging. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place for wrath. Notice all these commands are basically saying the same thing. He just sort of expands on it. Give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Notice the word Paul begins that sentence with. Beloved. Agapetoi in the Greek language. Dearly loved ones. Remember the word agape we covered in depth last week? He's telling them to love the family of God. He's telling them to love the enemies of God. And so he calls them beloved. As if to say, I love you dearly and you are dearly loved by Almighty God. And with that frame of reference. Then he says, do not avenge yourselves but give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. And God promises, I will repay, says the Lord. Of course, the tendency, as we've already mentioned, is to not wait for God to enact his vengeance, because, after all, God may be on an entirely different time schedule. And, I mean, I could take care of this right now for God. In fact, some people will justify it. I'm on a mission from God. Bam! Bam! That's human nature, is to not wait, but to act now and to, to act hard. The ex-premier from the Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev, once said about Christianity, There is much in Christ that he has common with us communists. But I cannot agree with him when he says, If you are hit on the right cheek to turn the left cheek. I believe in another principle, says Khrushchev. If I am hit on the left cheek... I hit back on the right cheek so hard that the head might fall off. (laughs) This is my sole difference with Christ. That's a pretty bold statement. He simply articulated the desire of human nature, the human tendency. But Paul says, no, give place for wrath. Vengeance is mine. Question, when will God exact his wrath? How? How? Two answers to that. Number one, right now, presently, through societal governments. Romans chapter 13 tells us. Fact down in verse 4. Notice what it says about those who do such things. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So in a sense, when the law is enforced by the government punitively against the criminal. That is, according to Paul, he's a minister of God, exacting wrath and punishment on the evildoer. And then ultimately, of course, on Judgment Day. That's the the great leveling day, payday for some, you might say. Back in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, They are treasuring up wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So it's twofold. Personally, we are to step back and not avenge ourselves, but societally, civilly, and as well as ultimately, we trust God that he will do it. Verse 20 is a strange text. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. That probably refers to an ancient Egyptian custom. When they wanted to display shame, they would put a pan on their head with coals in it, and they'd walk around in public with these burning coals to represent the burning pain of guilt and shame. And people had heard about it, they knew about it, and it became sort of a a saying, an axiom. Keep coals of fire on his head. In other words, what Paul is saying is when you treat your enemies with love and forgiveness and you refuse to repay, but you, instead of retaliating, serve them and love them, you're going to make them feel ashamed. You're going to simply add to their shame for their hatred of you. He'll be shameful for what he's done. Nothing will melt a person who's against you as love. I mean, you want to try this sometime. You should try it all the time. When somebody attacks you, even if it's a spouse or a child or it's an adult and and you're a child, if it's a coworker, you lousy this and that, what if you were to stop and say, thank you for bringing that to my attention, and I'm sorry if I've offended you, I'll search my heart? You're going to have a different reaction than if you were to go, well, let me tell you a few things about you that I've noticed. <laughs> you will absolutely diffuse them. In fact, if you, if you ask for forgiveness, you know what they're usually going to say? I feel so ashamed. I'm sorry. They're going to heap coals of fire on their head. You're going, to, you're going to destroy an enemy and make him an ally. Saul against David is a good example. Saul mistreated him. Saul chased him. Saul threatened to kill him, tried to kill him. One day David was hiding in a cave. Saul happened to be in the area, stepped into a cave, the Bible says to relieve himself. David's men said, God has delivered this guy into your hands. Kill him. He said, I can't touch God's anointed. I know he's a creep, but he's still the king, king creep. But nonetheless, he's the king. I can't touch God's anointed. So what he did is he took and cut off a piece of his robe, kept it. When Saul left the cave and was at a safe distance, David comes out of the cave with that little piece of robe. He says, Saul, let me ask you a question. How come all your counselors are telling you that I want to kill you? God delivered you into my hand, and look, I spared your life. Listen to the words of King Saul as he sees this. He begins to weep, and he raises up his voice, and he says, You are more righteous than I, for you repaid me with good, and I repaid you with evil. He heaped coals of fire on his head. He felt so ashamed. He wept. Oh, you're more righteous than I am. So this is far more than refusing to retaliate with hatred. It's deciding to demonstrate love in action. Matthew chapter 7. You don't have to turn to it. We're really out of time. The golden rule. We're familiar with it. Jesus said, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets." That's again the the pinnacle of love. Do unto others what you want them to do to you. And that is something that is found in no other religious system. None. You say, no, wait a minute, I disagree with you. I've, I've heard that or I've read that in different religious systems. I would say, yeah, you have sort of. In fact, I picked up a book a couple weeks ago on all the religions of the world and they had the epilogues Basically saying, why can't we all get along? We all teach exactly the same thing. And they brought up the golden rule. Here's the difference. All of the other religions have the same sort of stuff in the negative, not the positive. For instance, in the Talmud, Rabbi Hillel said, What is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. Confucius say, do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you. The Greek Stoics said, what you don't want to be done to you, don't do to anyone else. What's the difference? Jesus turned it around and said, it's it's more than just not doing what you don't want people to do to you. Go and do to them something positive that you want them to do to you. Then you'll fulfill all the law and the prophets. That's a big difference. It's sort of like the harpsichord. In the 1600s, there was the instrument developed, the harpsichord, which is sort of like a piano, but the strings were not hit with hammers. They were plucked with plectrums like, like a guitar, a pick. It was slow. It was not pure notes all the time. It was very limiting. It made music, but it was very slow. Around the 1800s, a guy had a bright idea that you take hammers, felt hammers, and you strike the note. You strike the string and it'll vibrate through the striking rather than the plectrum. He revolutionized altogether music, revolutionized music with the invention of the piano. So yeah, you have all of these, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, and all the other religions. Jesus comes along with the golden rule gives us a piano. And says, do to others what you want them to do to you. It's so different. It's put in the positive. Now we can make his music in a way that no one else could ever do before. It's seen in the positive light. We close with the last verse, and that's the fourth and final principle. Overcoming rather than being overcome. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. have you been hurt? You all have. Have you been insulted? Maybe today you were insulted. If you repay the insult with an insult, if you think of ways to get back at that person, to hurt the other person, then you are retaliating against evil with evil. It sucked you in. You're under its influence. But if you when you are reviled. Refuse to do it. Serve the other person. Decide to forgive. Do unto others as you want them to do to you. You will overcome the evil by good. That's the fourth and the final principle here. And by the way, I understand this is tough. This is what separates the minor leagues from the big leagues. This kind of love. You see, folks, it's not enough to just resemble unbelievers in the way they love. Oh, sure we should. In one sense, love our wives, unbelievers love their wives. We should love our husbands, heathens love their husbands. We should love our friends, unbelievers do that. But then we should go beyond what the unbeliever does to not repay, to serve We have a tremendous capacity for retaliation, but God has given us a tremendous capacity for love. How else, how else is the world going to ever take us seriously unless we love differently than they love? And this is the pinnacle. This is the deeper stuff. Socrates said, know yourself. Freud said, be yourself. Jesus said, give yourself. Give yourself. I met a man, he's now in heaven, He's a good friend of mine. He was a pastor of Calvary Chapel in Tokyo, Japan. His name was Mike Kahama. He was a kamikaze pilot in World War II. Two weeks before he flew his mission, the war ended, so he didn't have to fly his kamikaze death mission. As Soon as the war was ended, he gave his life to Christ. His mother had been praying for him all those years. Gave his life to Jesus Christ. A few years later, he met an American missionary who used to be an American soldier in World War II. At one time in their history, they were sworn to kill each other. They hated each other. They wanted the death of each other. Now they were brothers in Christ, made one over the death of Jesus Christ, who forgave their sins. And how could they do any less than to forgive each other? And when they met and they discussed, they embraced, they wept, and they became the closest friends. We're called to love differently than the world. Love your enemies.